Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Morning, everyone. Yes, it's Annie and Kim. We're here on this wonderful morning at uh, Solidarity Breakfast at 3CR on 855 AM on your dial. We stream, we podcast. We're very versatile. Yeah, we're all over the place. (laughs) We're all over the place. And we're awake. That's the important thing. We're awake. And today we've got a very interesting um, package of things to uh, share with you. Uh, We had a chat with uh, Ian Watson, who's an academic. He's just put out a book called A Disappearing World, Studies in Class, Gender and Memory. And uh, it is a fascinating book. It might sound a bit heavy duty, but actually it's incredibly, it is heavy duty, but it's incredibly easy to read. Because you hear the people that he's studying, there's some oral histories yeah, um, oral histories. So you get to hear them speak in their own words, which always makes it fascinating and relatable and very readable. And the other fascinating thing is his ability to match those conversations with uh, communications theory. And uh, and when I say that, it's all the very important stuff, mind stuff about around memory and how we actually uh, are able to understand ourselves through the way we remember and he's applied it to working class history Mm, because it sounds quite academic when you read it but when you think about it it's you know he's talking about the collective memory of the working class and that actually means you know your mum or your dad telling you stories about a strike so it's actually very relatable what he's He's talking about. Yeah, so um, we had a chat with Ian and uh, about his book and what he found, A Dis- Disappearing World, Studies in Class, Gender and Memory, and that's what we're going to start the program off with. Uh, later on, we've got uh, Rank and File, and uh, this is uh, the week that was. We're going to have a chat with Black Douglas, who's the very first Aboriginal painter to be part of the... Uh, finalists for the Archibald Prize. That sounds impossible. That's outrageous that it's taken this long. <laughs> Maybe it's because uh, take. Oh, well, we'll ask him. We'll ask him why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk politics in between. So uh, keep tuned. <laughs> How to Make Trouble and Influence People 2016 Diary will be launched at Friends of the Earth Food Co-op on Friday, November the 13th between 6 and 8pm. Join us at 
312 Smith Street for speeches, readings and performances of classic Australian protest songs by Laura McFarlane and Jimmy Rat. A benefit for 3CR and the Lost Said Ross Biologicals Reserve, the diary features 366 radical dates in Australian history plus dozens of images and stories. Copies will be available on the night or can be ordered via freecr.org.au. How to Make Trouble and Influence People is a FreeCR supporter. Isn't that wonderful? It's really nice to hear Peter doing a uh, sponsor ad for uh, something as great as uh, How to Make Trouble and Influence People. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As we said, we are going to go straight to our conversation with Ian Watson around his book, A Disappearing World, Studies in Class, Gender and Memory. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim. It's Solidarity Breakfast. A disappearing world is a good phrase because it captures the idea that in that period from the late 1940s through to the 1980s, there was still a very distinct working class world of manual labour, small working class communities that were close-knit, cultural institutions like strong trade unions, sporting teams that were locally based, a whole lot of things that made the working-class world of the 1940s a very vibrant and a world that um, had lots of problems, particularly for women, with the the problems of alcohol and violence and that kind of patriarchal kind of home life that they endured. But at the same time, it was a world in which class was a very affirming sense of identity. It gave people a location of where they stood and a basis for political mobilisation. And over that period, by about the 1980s, that was beginning to disappear. And of course, by today, it's almost gone, many of those elements. Um, Class, for example, is no longer an affirming identity. It's, It's rarely used. In fact, we now have all these euphemisms like working families rather than just working class. Um, So in those respects, the world that I've captured in all my uh, interviews with with families and with people from that period, that sort of world has disappeared, but there's a residue of it still here, of course. I mean, the the issues of domestic violence that have been coming up very much recently in in the popular media, um, they are very much a continuity of those same issues problems of alcohol, of gambling, and certainly problems of class oppression, um, the exploitation of workers in the workforce. Um, you know, recently we've had a whole reminder of how you know, blatant that is. So there's a certain continuity, but there's certain elements of it that have definitely disappeared. I've been quite fascinated by oral histories, um, especially yep. working class oral histories, um, I found it really interesting the way that you defined memory as cultural, both being can be cultural and collective as well as individual, um, because the way that it has been, I suppose, seen in academia as being memory is how accurately you can recall events, but actually that doesn't tell you that much about meaning and the meanings that people attach to memory. So I was wondering if you could go into maybe a bit about the theory of cultural memory a bit more. 
anyone who starts off doing oral histories immediately runs up against the problem of, oh, how accurate is what your people are telling you? You know, can you really rely on that? Where are the archival sources? And if you go down that path, you're in trouble because, of course, they're not going to be accurate. But that doesn't mean that it's fictional or that it has no use at all. I think of it this way. The same way a linguist can go and talk to one person and because of the the language they use and the linguistic structure of the words, of, of the sentences, of the whole framework they're working with, you gain immense insights into how a language operates. Well, to me, it's just like that with culture. The memories may be personal memories, and there's a lot of interesting stuff around the psychology of memory that says it's only in remembering that we actually fashion our identities. So they don't pre-exist memory. Our memories help us develop what are called narrative memories. And when these people talk to me, they're engaging in a performance. They're, they're trying to impress me or they're trying to impress their partner. They're adopting a particular persona or whatever you'd like to call it um, in order to talk about the past. And all of this is fine and, and it introduces distortions and it introduces what we call teleology, the idea that they know where their past was heading, it's bringing them to where they are in the future or where they are right now and of course it never really happened that way. So in, in a way all the psychology of memory, all of the inaccuracies, all of the personal stuff going on, the performance, all of that's true. But the materials that they're going to work with, the, the language they have access to, the particular metaphors they draw on, the imagery that they summon up, all of that is cultural. And what cultural is, is wider than the individual. Cultural meanings come from the milieu that people are in there. They are social memories. They are the kind of artefacts that happen in a working class community when People get together in the pub and retell a story that's been happening locally. And today we often have a sense of that with the term an urban myth. Someone has a favourite anecdote that gets repeated so often that it becomes conventional wisdom. And of course, in social media today, it would spread like wildfire. In the period I'm looking at, it would have been the pub and the family dinner sitting around the table. All of these sort of cultural materials were shaped in the workplace, in the family, in, in the sporting realm and as they circulated in those communities those cultural meanings um, they were seized on by people often unconsciously and they shaped the memories that came out so ideas of hard work ideas of solidarity ideas of um, the right way to um, go about doing things whatever it might be in the workplace um, all, all sorts of um, larrikin activities by coal miners, getting up to practical um, sort of jokes in workplaces. There was a lot of humour in working class workplaces based on practical jokes, based on making the living sort of part of work more tolerable, making living in a, a world with a lot of hardship, physical work that was really demanding. How do you get through the day? You do it through the sociability of the workplace. You do it through humour. And all those cultural meanings infuse memory so that when people then go on to talk to me about their working lives, draw on their memories, they are, in fact, revealing to me that whole world of cultural meaning. Do you think that, in some ways, this kind of memory is more important for the working class because they are an oppressed class 
and they don't have their own media, they don't get to write the official history books? I think it is important, and one of the great, if you like, tragedies today is that the resources the working class once had to share those meanings and to build what I would call an affirming language of class have largely gone. Um, In the 1950s, when researchers asked people what was their basis of identity, class was used, and it was an affirming language. And in fact, you know, the the language of the idle um, class was really, the wealthy was seen as lazy and idle because they lived off their, you know, coupons. By the 1960s, that was fading. By the 1980s, it was almost gone, and people didn't use class as a basis of identity and a division, except in the more radical parts of the Labor movement. Uh, The Labor Party, of course, gave up on class long ago. So what that meant was that it it left people without um, their language, and the things like working-class newspapers disappeared, sporting teams that were attached to workplaces disappeared. I mean, Lithgow, where I did some of my research, had 14 rugby league teams attached to various... Um, you know, workplaces and communities. And even in the 60s when I was growing up, uh, rugby league was still a working class sport attached to suburbs. Of course, by the time we get to today where sports have been commodified, teams are no longer linked to working class identity. They're now fully commercialised. And, and so, in a way, the, the kind of uh, resources that people had... Um, the media they had access to, the language they had access to, the social activities they had access to that took the language of class and and reminded people of solidarity, of reminded people that it was an affirming thing to be working class because it was your efforts that produced social value, that produced the surplus value, that made, in a way, the whole of the society function. That had disappeared. And, And by the time you get to the 1980s, you're getting working class used interchangeably with welfare class. And it's now, you know, dull bludges and all of that sort of disparaging language used. So that when someone thinks working class now, they think, oh, disadvantaged. They think welfare. They think Mount Druitt. And, and none of the affirming language of class and the cultural resources to remind people of solidarity and to remind them of exploitation they're largely absent now and to my mind that's a terrible tragedy and and it's one of the few things that the more radical elements of the labor movement still try to build on but there's very few other social bases for that anymore you pointed out that in your book that uh, one of the confusions in terms of people's identification with a particular class was people becoming more and more professional the professional class and the uh uh, the uh, managerial class overtaking the amount of people who were uh, gaining their identity through labour. Do you think that there's a sort of a, a faux middle classness? If you look at it, uh, technically speaking, if you're actually middle class, you live off your assets, while being a professional class, and increasingly the professional class is, being, is not uh, self-employed but working in a business that's owned by someone else, that even though that there's a cultural understanding of elements that come from being middle class, that the sheer practicalities of the economics of this actually creates uh, 
it breaks down a sense of solidarity, creates uh, cre- creates doubt, self doubt, and in fact a faux middle class. Yes, that's that's a very important trend. Um, it's been common, of course, across the Western world. Uh, the decline of manual jobs, particularly the hard manual work that the people I talked to did, you know, the people who went down the coal mines and still used picks and shovels. Um, so that kind of world of work has receded, and at the same time, the increase in um, higher education, particularly from the 1960s onwards with the Colleges of Advanced Education and the expansions of universities, meant that you got a lot more professional middle-class people, the teachers and the engineers. And quite often they were the first children of a generation that had been to university. So they had their roots in that working-class community. Their parents had been manual workers, factory workers, whatever, but they weren't. And in fact, they become dislocated from that cultural world of their parents. And particularly for women, this is very noticeable because it's hard to maintain a kind of class loyalty to your parents' generation when a lot of it was a very stifling, paternalistic world. For men, it was less of a problem because there was a lot of continuity, even if there were different aspirations. There was still a lot of the same elements of masculinity around. But that shift to the professional middle class has given rise to what some people have called a contradictory class location. So people take on the values of the middle class, but they still know what their working class backgrounds have you know, given to them in terms of a certain amount of solidarity at times, an awareness of class exploitation, and often they're quite uncomfortable moving between those two worlds. They're, they're conscious that there's a dislocation. They're not the same as, as if you like, the, the, the middle class people, particularly the upper middle class people who may have had generations of, of money behind them and have lived in very, you know, wealthy backgrounds and, you know, have a kind of born-to-rule mentality. I mean, we see those people all the time, for example, in the, in the Liberal Party and in the private school milieu. The people I talked to had made that transition into teaching or architecture or engineering or some, or nursing or the, some of those professional backgrounds, but they still had their roots in those working-class worlds. There's no doubt that working-class as it should be properly understood of, of dependent on your wage labour, whether it's paid as a salary or an hourly rate, is still the basis for exploitation, is still the basis for people's survival. Until they build up enough assets to break, break free from that kind of relationship, they're inherently working class. But culturally, the shift into the professional middle class occupations can disguise that. And so they're never really able to embrace what we call petty bourgeois ideology, you know, the ideology that, you know, says that, you know, you are able to be whatever you want to be, the kind of, you know, um, self-determining ideology that says, you know, the material circumstances don't matter, you are what you are, you lift yourself up by the bootstraps, all of those ideologies that the traditional middle class have always used they don't really ring true for people who are still dependent on their wages. And that really comes to a head during a downturn, a, a recession or a depression, when people get the sack and find themselves really vulnerable. They may have a mortgage now 
and that probably makes them more acutely financially stressed if they lose their jobs. But ultimately, they're all still largely working class, but the solidarity is not there because where the solidarity once came from that cultural sense of shared language, shared references, shared memories, that's been disrupted by this movement into the new middle class and the adoption of, of you know, what you're calling this faux middle class ideology where they still think that you know, they're, they're no longer working class perhaps in, in the way their parents were. So it, it leaves them quite vulnerable. And Now I know this sounds like a blunt question but um, I want to ask why? Although that, all the good elements of that class identity seems to have been jettisoned, there seems to be some elements that have uh, been allowed to remain, which are the things like uh, the distinction between the deserving working class and the non-deserving yeah. working class. I find it fascinating how uh, Victorian moralism constantly intrudes into what's now the 21st century. The idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor was a mainstay, you know, 200 years ago. And the fact that it can endure today is staggering because what we are looking at when we look at the world of work today is a polarisation of the labour market. Massive casualisation, underemployment, chronic long-term unemployment. These are all features of advanced capitalism and the way it's reconfigured the labour market. And the idea that there's a role for any kind of Victorian moralism in that is staggering. And I think that what um, we need to understand is that this is the latest incarnation of exploitation, that... At its heyday, industrial capitalism built these large factories, gave people, if you like, the solidarity that came from working in factories, that gave them the bases for industrial unionism, and in a way, craft unionism, which grew in, you know, at the end of the, the 19th century and gave people a kind of aristocracy of labour, which was, in a way, an inculcation of the snobbishness that went with craft work, and there was those big disputes for many years between industrial unionism and craft unionism. And, you know, today we, we, we don't see a lot of that, but what its residue was that it fragmented um, the labour movement. Instead of one big union which was building up in the, the wake of the First World War, we ended up with a lot of small craft unions and the large industrial unions and the, the failure to build out of that uh, wider solidarity. But of course, once you got to the 1980s and the so-called reforms of the Hawke-Keating era um, and the compromises that the Labor movement engaged in, we got both the worst of, of, of both worlds because no longer was the solidarity coming out of there. The unions amalgamated, but they lost the the impetus that the craft unions had given, which was a kind of leadership within the labour movement, a radical leadership, uh, keeping in mind that quite often the communists had been at the forefront in a number of the unions and even the metal workers who were a craft union gave decisive leadership to the labour movement. Now, that started to break down and at the same time 
the unions became, if you like, you know, in, in, in the words of the 1940s, tame cat unions. <laughs> they basically fell into line with what the workers wanted. And we've seen that lately with some of the revelations out of the, uh, the Royal Commission with the, the, tr- the, the sellouts that the AWU has apparently made. Shocking that, that a union would do this to its workers. So in, in a sense... Um, what we've seen are a whole lot of developments both within the labour movement, uh, within the labour market, and the idea that, that somehow the deserving and undeserving working class, the deserving, undeserving poor, the dull blood you miss, all of this stuff is, is just quite bizarre because there is no role for this kind of moralism about deserving and undeserving. It, it's essentially uh, a smokescreen, a way to camouflage the precarious existence that large numbers of low-paid workers now face because of casualisation, underemployment and unemployment. Um, Just to finish off, I would really like to go back to this notion of uh, a person's identity and how it's related to memory. Now, you've got um, working-class people and you've spoken to people from... uh, a, a town that uh, was extremely working class over a period of time and you've also talked to the people from Mount Druid who uh, have lived there over a period of time. Now it's interesting to me that uh, a lot of people's uh, identity uh, is related to the class that they were brought up in but that class was defined by the overall society that they're in uh, just as the removal of class has also been defined by the economic society that they're in. Uh, so they're always referencing themselves internally, but also externally. Uh, how much freedom do you think people have to, working class people have, to actually construct their own identity based on what's really happening to them? I think that's um, that's true. I think there is a lot more scope for that than the superficial surveys which ask people, you know, are you working class or not, or where do you place yourself, and everyone will say middle class these days. I think what they have in those memories, and I have one illustration in the book of a school teacher whose father was a coal miner, and she has a graphic account of him coming home from work thoroughly exhausted from being down the pit, covered in soot, totally black, lying on the couch and just falling asleep through exhaustion. And for her, that class memory, that that way of registering her own life by reference to what her parents lived through helps her understand the changes that were then happening in industrial relations because she was a school teacher and they were losing conditions at school and she was fighting back through the union against that. And she had the basis to build her class identity, her class loyalty, as I call it, to the working class through those memories of her father. And I also talked to someone in Mount Druid, a couple who had been themselves working class. She had worked in factories. She had worked as a metal worker who went on to build their own business. They were self-employed and they now joined the Liberal Party. They basically saw themselves as upwardly mobile and so to all intents and purposes they no longer had a class loyalty. But he found it very hard to sack any of his workers. He still had all of the memories of working with your hands. He still couldn't resist 
getting his hands dirty, getting into the work of manual work because personally that was his class memory. So these sort of ways in which people's current circumstances and the kind of superficial way that they might talk about class when openly questioned by a, an interviewer uh, are misleading. Underneath it, there are a dense network of memories, of uh, personal uh, anecdotes, of, of reminiscences of your parents, of your early working life that are a touchstone for what class is really about. And so often class is about hardship, about exploitation and yet at the same time solidarity so it's always got this double edge to it it's, it's an affirming identity because others collectively are there with you resisting exploitation and it's also about hardship and the real work that produces the surplus value in our society that, that powers everything and, and keeps everything going and so I think in that way you're right. There's, there's the ability that all people who have had a working class milieu at some point in their lives can still sustain class memories. And that's important material for people to work with, I think. Go and see this circus. It's unbelievable. Anyway, we're just about time on uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning to start Rank and File. And on this week's edition of Rank and File Radio, I'm once again joined by uh, CFMEU and MUA Rank and File member and regular contributor of the program, Davey Thomason, and today he's going to report back on a recent CFMEU branch meeting. Welcome back to the program, Davey. Yeah, thank you very much there, comrade. Uh, I, I first want to acknowledge the line that I'm speaking from, the wrong people's land here is part of the Kulin Nation. Talking to you up on the Wurundjeri land, uh, up there in uh, Melbourne. Uh, again, uh, the last branch meeting, which was uh, the September branch meeting, the last Wednesday of the month, was very inspiring, but it, it was very, very hard for, for me to, uh, to, to, uh, to talk because I was talking about the the continuing murder and custody of our uh, our people, my 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 uh, my wife's people, you know, my boys' people. Uh, it was the I think the thirty second anniversary of the murder of uh, John Pat uh, was on the previous Sunday. I think was the thirty second anniversary of the brutal murder by six off-duty coppers and uh, it, it it was seen by uh, by one of our uh, uh, our uh, our members uh, Frank O'Grady who, who is now uh, now a national organizer for the for the CFMU uh, Frank was in uh, Roburn he was actually delegate on the Roborn jail. The, the union was uh, was constructing the the Roborn jail, and he was over there organising with the with the great uh, John Cummins. 
and uh, Frank saw the, he was in the first floor of, you know, the old pubs. He was in the first floor of the pub, and uh, a 16-year-old, John Pat, was brutally bashed and murdered by six off-duty cobbers. And the uh, thing had happened to Frank, he was, uh, the, the coppers saw him looking, they knew he had seen him, and they warned him off. They threatened to, uh, to uh, kill him as well. Uh, that's what Frank, uh, and Frank uh, spoke about this as a, a commemoration to uh, to another brutal uh, murder in custody of uh, of uh, Deluca Dew. She was uh, she was murdered in custody in uh, Port Hedland, I think. Port Hedland uh, lockup. I mean. Uh, she was taken for a parking fine, a parking fine on her own land. Uh, taken, uh, raped in her cell by the so-called custodial officers. Raped in her cell. Taken to hospital where she would she she was being treated. The racist nurses, the racist doctors, the racist judges. And I, I reported this to the to the branch meeting. And this is how filthy they are, how filthy liars the police and the custodial people are, men and women, whites. She was actually dead. All her clothes was burned to give evidence of the rape. And uh, I mean, you talk about talk about a crime against humanity. The murders in custody are all crimes against humanity. But nobody seems to care in this country. Nobody quite cares. The unions don't care. But on this night, the CFMU cared. And you've got to understand, uh, Marcus, when I talk about murder in custody, because that's what it is, it's not death in custody, it's murder in custody. I'm talking about my own family. You understand that the uncle I never met, Mr. Ward, Mr. Ward was, I mean, and, and that that one was, that murder in custody was publicized in, in the Four Corners, where one of the most amazing men anywhere else in the world, he represented his people in China. He was born completely free. He, he knew no other person but his family. He walked through his land free, and it was actually filmed when whites first uh, invaded his country. There was actually a camera filmed him. It was on the Four Corners report. And he was cooked to death for four and a half hours from the Warburton Rangers to Kalgoorlie of a woman who was on her on her uh, iPod, or I, whatever they are, listening to music all the way. With a known racist driving the driving the the dog box, Mr. Ward could have been in the you know the them five seaters, but because they were so racist, they put him in a in a dog box that the air conditioner wasn't working. They fucking knew it wasn't working. When they stopped to give him water, they chucked the water in. They never checked if he was alive or dead. He was cooked. His body had second degree burns on it, which meant he'd he'd, he'd been he'd been 
put on a almost like a, a a griddle, you know, a barbecue. He was barbecued in the back of his. I mean, how can we even talk about this? It's so hard to talk about it. And then they lied about it. And it was the Filth and Labour government who were in power in Western Australia. They knew all their all their uh, dog boxes weren't working properly. But who gives a damn who was in the back of them? Because it was all Noongar people who were in the who were in the back of them, and people from the Warburton Ranges. Now, 60% of all the people in cell in, in, in custody in the West is, you know, all the races from from apartheid South Africa are in Western Australia. 100,000 of the races who couldn't handle blacks in control of the country that they used to control. I'm talking about my my family here. That was my uncle. I never met one of the most amazing people in the world I never met. And one of our members, uh, I mean, the Assistant Secretary, Sean Reardon, who, uh, who, when I asked him to help, and Sean's been vilified all over the place, you know what I mean? But Sean helped, when I asked him to, uh, and it was, a, and i got to say it was a boss of mine, uh, and there is some good bosses, you know, uh, from MC Labour Hire, you know, Mark Vanetti, you know he 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 put the money up for for my 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 niece and my 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 sister, who's Ali Daisy Ward's daughter, to go to uh, to Kalgoorlie for the coroner's report and and the granny to to go to 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 go, you know, to fly from from uh, you know from here to. South Australia and to, to, to the to the west, you know what I mean? A lot of money, and and I knew it was more than my family's responsibility. And uh, and there is a you know the assistant secretary uh, Elias. He 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 knows what like it is for the death in custody. He knows what like it is. You know his family's been touched by that. They pass unanimously. That there should be that the and and the resolution should be put to this to the it's about time to you know that the ACTU took some action so there was a resolution put to the ACTU there was a resolution put to the national secretary Michael O'Connor there was a resolution put to both leaders of the you know that Shorten about the time he stepped up which he won't. And the man who calls it, no, the man who calls him the richest, fiest prick who's ever been in power here, you know. What's his name? Malcolm Turnbull, you know. Him and his, him and his, him and Lucy, a resolution put to them to, to intervene no more murders in custody. A resolution was put to South Australia, to that, you know, the Labour Party there who were shonks, you know. Witherell, you know. What's he doing for murders in custody? And also to Western Australian, yeah, Colin Burnett, who 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 doesn't acknowledge his his Noongar. I mean, I was so proud of the, you know, the response. It was unanimous. Everybody, I got to say that the old BLs, Mick Lewis and Greg, they 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 seconded it. Uh, I got to say that Warren, the president. Ralph Edwards was so respectful, you know, allowed the debate to go on.
like he should. And what came out of it as well, because, uh, I mean, these people are so dotten, refusing their law, because this went on to uh, to what is happening to uh, a further resolution was passed. And it, all these resolutions are being directed to the people who have the power to change it, which we know they find it very hard to swallow the racism in themselves, you know what I mean? The resolution went on that the union demands, the CFMU demands that the young woman who was raped in, uh, I forget whether it was Manus Island or, or Nauru, be allowed to come and have an abortion in, in Australia. I mean, what sort of country are we in? You know, the, the fair go for everybody, is it? The land of the fair go. The egalitarian land that our union movement keeps telling us we're, we're in. It's only only egalitarian for whites, for white trade unionists. I mean, I know our union holds its hand out to all, all, uh, 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 you know, all the people that come here, but it's based on racism. The union movement has got to decolonize itself, and they've got to decolonize itself. But it's definitely making good moves, but the moves have got to turn into actions. It's alright putting putting resolutions in the air, because that's all it is. It's only written in the sand. It blows away. Because they've been blown away here for 200 and, however, 228 years, I think it is, since the invasion. Nobody has done anything about it. In actual fact, it's worse. People are dying every day. Statistics are there. You know, 61 for Maine. 61. And i got to look after two boys. I want to make them reach the old age that their ancestors reached. Not 61. No compo. No, no super. No retirement. We talk about C-bus. Who gets C-bus if you die at 61? Women, 71. Who gets Who gets retirement? But it was a positive step, and we've got to look at the positive steps. We've got to unite, even with our... We've got to unite even with people who are against us. That's the name of the game. But it's about a true handshake, not a false one. Not a false one. I mean, when are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? I am the only one since Mabo case. I'm the only CFMU member. Whoever am I am on a job acknowledges that I'm on stolen land. I'm the only one. And don't forget all our great, you know, and I'm talking about the ETU, the plumbers, start acknowledging that you're building cities on the stolen land of the people you're on. And that's all over Aussie. All the little towns have all been stolen. Let's start paying the rent, making treaties, true treaties, not false ones. Everywhere else in the world, this is the only place where they're not making a treaty. In, in, in Canada, with the first peoples there, you can't get a job. The first people on the job are, are, uh, are First Nation people. You know, the traditional owners of the land. They are the first on the job and the last off the job. And, 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 and I've just found out 
up in up in the the gas plants up in Queensland. The first people up there are the Murrays. And they're the last ones on. It's happening in Aussie. because Not because of the Australian unions, because of the Canadian unions. And not because only the Canadian unions, because the first peoples there demand it. So it's already happening in this country, but it's been forced on us. I know who I am. I know who I, where I, I belong. I belong nearly in the Arctic Circle. My people are Viking. My people are, are picked. My people are Scots. I know who I am. They've got no rights here unless the rights of first people are taken care of first. It's hard for me to have a yarn about this, but it's got to be said, even if it's hard to say, it's got to be said. I, I have seen the face of racism more in the last six months of my life than I ever saw before in my life because I had not decolonized myself. The trade union movement, the Marxist movement, the Socialist Alliance, the Socialist Alternative, who call themselves the leaders, they've got to decolonize themselves. They are part of the problem as well. They are part of the problem. Don't put your hand out to, to First Nation people and acknowledge you're on the land and don't admit that you're part of the problem as well. Thank you, comrade, and thanks for listening to me. <laughs> and uh, that was... Uh... Uh, rank and file. Um, it's Solidarity Breakfast here with Annie and Kim. We've got a few things to tell you about uh, before we get on with uh, This Is The Week That Was. The first one is uh, the uh, rally to defend the uh, fertility clinic, control clinic, down at uh, 118 Wellington Parade. It started at, uh, it's going to start at 9.30. Uh, it, uh, as more and more stuff is uh, being pushed uh, in regards to the um, uh, curtailing of uh, women's right to uh, control their own uh, future their, uh, in terms of their fertility, their production of children, uh, there, there is uh, an upping of the ante around uh, the abortion clinics. So that's why there's going to be a little bit of a rally down there today at uh, 118 Wellington Street in East Melbourne. And uh, there's going to also you've got to remember that there's uh, going to be the Activist Arts Festival down at the Trades Hall Council. Um, which is happening when is what date is that happening on? Today. Today. Fantastic. Um, from eleven till um, six PM. Um, which is a festival for human rights, animal rights, social justice. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, just a bit of a uh, love fest for activists, I'd have to say. The Reclaim the Night is also on today. Uh, it's a, a rally. Join join us in protest against all forms of violence and harassment against women for the 36th anniversary of Reclaim the Night in Melbourne. They will be marching from the State Library to Fed Square. Uh, they will march together calling for justice and full funding of support services for survivors. Uh, the um, Reclaim the Night Melbourne welcomes everyone to the march, regardless of race, religion, occupation, sexual orientation, gender identity or disability. That's at 6.30pm, State Library, corner of La Trobe and Swanston Street City. And that is tonight. How about that? Mm. Yes, we'll now move on to uh, This Is The Week. 
that was. A weak solidarity breaky team listener when for the second time in a row we've seen a long-held myth clearly emanating from long-haired, commie, greenie, bring-down-the-greatest-little-economic-order-of-them-all agitprop, exposed as commie propaganda. Remember last week how big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull exposed the lies directed at poor, innocent, so-called tax havens, Cayman Island in this case. Lucy, true blue Aussie tax laws are so lax, it seems to me we wouldn't pay nearly enough tax on the billions we make. The, the good news is if we transfer this fortune to the Caymans, we can pay all the tax we should pay. Yes, I agree, Malcolm, dear. It's important we pay as much tax as we can, like all our friends who also have a soft spot for the Caymans. Yes, we now know the super, super filthy rich invest through those places to maximise their taxes. And now we've discovered after years of lies and poor old Adolf copying a bad press, a bad rap, that the Nazis had nothing to do with the Holocaust. The Holocaust had nothing to do with Nazism. The swastika, the jackboots, Adolf and the fun team running Hail Hitler were 100% innocent. It was the bloody Palestinians all the time, these evil terrorists with so effective a propaganda machine in alliance with their evil commie long-haired co-conspirators who have led the world to believe their propaganda for 70 years. And this week's debunking of the myth, iconoclasm, cannot be denied. It was exposed by no less reliable a source than the Zion big supremo, Benjamin not another Yahoo himself. Well, that probably explains why the world compensated poor Zion by giving them the Palestinians' country. God, Yahweh, the prophet, condemning these mass murderers to eternal banishment, eternal statelessness, and eternity wandering in the wilderness. Despite the evil of the Palestinians, Zion has not just cast them into the wilderness and ignored them. It has sent in heavily armed trained killers to protect them. Sent in good, holy Zion citizens to take over the wilderness so the incompetent Palestinians don't waste its potential to those in exile. And what thanks does it get for this overwhelming act of forgiveness and generosity? Terrorist children throwing stones, giving the compassionate train killers the dreadful choice of shooting them dead or locking them up for 20 years, which it does roughly in equal numbers, and forcing them to bulldoze the homes of these evil nomads by resisting their punishment, which, thanks to not another Yahoo, we now know was 100% justified. Gotta say, with him we don't need another Yahoo. Uh, Benjamin, how many heavily armed Palestinian train killers patrol the streets of Zion, shooting, bulldozing and setting up checkpoints to prevent people going anywhere, while protecting evil Palestinians who steal the homes of Zion people that used to be the homes of Palestinian people? Your question says it all. If we did not control the lives and movements of these evil terrorist perpetrators of the greatest act of evil ever committed, they would try to control the lives and movements of liberty, freedom, and democracy-loving Zion citizens. Like Benjamin, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Secretary for World State, John Caring for Train Killers, said their sole ambition was peace. We call on all parties to show restraint, all parties, 
the evil Palestinians and the evil Palestinians. And like Benjamin, we see the evil of the stateless Palestinians as the barrier to peace. Given there is no Palestine, despite what they say, we could achieve peace if only they would accept that they are stateless and nameless. How dare they call themselves Palestinians when there is no Palestine? Well, there we are. We'll leave Benjamin and John striving for peace and wonder what myth might be exposed, might be demolished next week. Apropos of not much at all, I'm sure we've all noticed the ubiquity of the US of cultural takeover. When I typed Nazism, it came up with a capital N, showing the US of corporation sees it as important. So I tried communism, but small c, unimportant. Israel and America, capital I, capital A, very important. Cuba, would you believe, small c. It's, it's the US of way of telling us what matters in this world, this US of world. Well, now I've got that out of my system, still on the US of, these big supremo hopeful debates certainly analyze the big issues. At the Hillary and that lot debate last week, a journo really probed do black people matter, she asked. Now, now, what are the odds on anybody saying no to that one, regardless of whether they think black people matter or not? And surprise, surprise, they all thought blacks mattered. And the chair-type person asked whether any candidate did not support capitalism. We have to save capitalism from itself. Hillary spoke for all of them. And the US of taxpayers have sure as hell done that. The taxpayers bailing out the non-taxpayers. Final comment on the deep, deep debate. The so-called left-of-the-right candidate, Bernie, was asked, could a socialist ever win a presidential election? <laughs> Got absolutely no idea why they asked him. On capitalism, non-socialism in the US of, this Princeton economist Angus Deaton has won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on why the poor are poor which I thought was pretty obvious. In fact, I, I might nominate my pretty obvious and give myself a chance for the prize next year. For instance, he studied whether malnutrition caused poverty by making people too weak to find work, which he assumed was the case, but discovered, surprise, surprise again, that no, no, being poor led to malnutrition. Gee, we'd never have known. Thank goodness for brilliant researchers like Angus. He gets $1.3 million for working that one out, which should cover any of his personal poverty problems for a while and allow him to keep up the calories, avoid malnutrition. And what a moving tribute as he waves the cheque at the acceptance ceremony. I couldn't have done this without the poor, without the destitute. To the poor! To the poor, thou chorus! And now, to the rich, the deserving unpoor. Last week, talking of the Caymans, we mentioned voracious reptiles, which Caymans are, of course, and voracious boardrooms. I mention that because we'd never mention the words voracious and Gina in the same breath. But there's a case before the courts, well, the Queensland Land Court at the moment, over two Galilee Basin lifting the world's poor out of poverty coal mines planned by True Blue Aussie's filthiest, richest person. The bloody long-haired greenies and local farmers are yet again threatening investment and jobs by opposing government approval for both mines. And of course, the approval has already taken the environment into account. 
The selfish, greedy local farmers reckon the groundwater bores and aquifers they rely on for grazing will be polluted and depleted by Gina's attempt to assist the national economy, lift the world's poor out of poverty, a true patriotic gesture and what thanks does she get? And there's no threat. Gina's very expensive silk said that. Our expert report shows the mine would be able to exist without having a significant effect on the water table. The report found there was little likelihood of damage to the Great Artesian Basin. A report commissioned by Gina. What more assurance do they want? I hope they wouldn't leap to irrational conclusions that little likelihood and without significant effect might lie in the eye of the beholder or the very expensive mouth for hire of the very expensive silk. And on tax, Cook Casino Supremo Jamie Puker boasted his company paid more tax, a higher percentage of, than any other top 50 company. Highly commendable, James, but that brackets bit that any other top 50 company means it mightn't be saying a lot. After all, the rich know how to run a company explaining why the government has sensibly announced evil union bosses won't be allowed anywhere near their members' superannuation. It shows just how evil these unions are that they run super funds making higher profits for lazy avaricious workers and charging lower fees than the banks and good responsible financial institutions who understand investment fees and profit. This is a deliberate plot to undermine the banks and responsible financial institutions. These evil union bosses pose a malicious threat to real competition, and so we must generate real competition by legislating to ensure the banks and responsible financial institutions get their hands on all this lovely money in the interests of the lazy, avaricious workers, of course. Of course, who would think otherwise? The banks attack the union industry funds for peddling fallacies. Many non-union funds make comparable profits. Uh, so why change if the union funds are successful? We can't leave these vital national matters in the hands of amateurs. We're not comparing apples with apples. Real business must make profit for itself. And finally, congratulations to the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, for saving True Blue Aussie from terrorist immorality, sending that hussy Abiyan back to Daru without an abortion, because Pete knew she would try to exploit us by claiming the fetus as a True Blue Aussie citizen. He showed her, gave her a Nauru True Blue Aussie Honiara Nauru round trip. We don't want these types here. Imagine the damage she'd do. Good morning. Oh, Kevin's getting angry. Yeah, God, things are dark, aren't they? Yeah, that's very dark. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. But we're going to go to something a bit lighter, which uh, will redeem the morning for you. We're going to talk to Black Douglas, who is the first uh, Aboriginal man or... Def- um, publicly recognised Aboriginal man who has been uh, uh, decided to be a finalist. Has He's done an, a, um, a portrait and he put it into the Archibald Prize and lo and behold, he got to be 
one of the finalists. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, and, and I won't be too much lighter for you, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was pretty dark, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, I like that fella. I'd love to have him at the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. barbecue. Yeah. Tell us about uh, doing a portrait of Uncle Max Ulo. Tell us about your subject. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to have to make an amendment to the fact that um, I'm not actually the first um, Aboriginal artist selected in as a finalist. Oh, tell us about that. Um, Go on, tell us. And even even in this one, there's only my, well, it's only two of us: that's myself and Richard Bell. He did a self-portrait of himself. Oh, right. um, mm, um, But certainly, I'm pretty sure I'm the first of my language group. Oh, I um, understand. Which is a a great historic first. So first Dungadi Aboriginal fella to be selected. Um, There was Robert Campbell Jr. a couple of years ago. um, And um, I'm pretty sure he's Naku, a neighbouring clan from Kempsey region in New South Wales. But anyway, it's a... Damn fine achievement to be in the Archibald alongside the consistency of what seems to be a um, fairly monocultured event. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I just like hearing you say your uh, your words. Yeah, <laughs> you, you just, <laughs> it's a lovely sound. Um, and I'm so incompetent at saying anything in other languages, so I'm so thrilled. <laughs> I'm sorry we got that wrong, but I'm uh, congratulations for uh, actually uh, making it. Uh, I noticed that in your uh, picture of Uncle Max Ulo, which people can go and have a look at because it's being shown at the moment at the Ballarat uh, Art Gallery. It's the only place that it's being shown outside New South Wales. So get on a train and go down and have a look. You, you've got this wonderful, uh, you use, uh, what is it, bottle tops? I use all sorts of things. The what I find the most effective is um, champagne corks and wine corks. Okay. So I have to rely on a lot of my um, my boisterous mates who seem to enjoy such a beverage to supply me those corks, of course. <laughs> and that could be and, a good um, job. Mm, but the and yes, there's anything from uh, like gel container lids and. Um, jar tops and even um, kind of large fishing reel corks. Corks are the best thing for doing big dots and I will explain the use of that. That's because um, I entered into a little venture on kind of um, really abstracting the dot and I've seen that's become commonplace for uh, a lot of Aboriginal artists to what I call exploit the dot. And there's a big discussion going on about this as to who perhaps has kind of cultural ownership of that style. And that's been going on ever since I began painting, which is now 17 years. So I'm, in recent times, I decided to experiment with um, kind of exaggerating the use of the dot. And I'm not the first to do so either because Robert Campbell Jr., as I mentioned earlier, he was probably one of the first noted uh, Aboriginal artists to really contemporise the use of the dot. But um, I'm doing it in a really big way. I don't think there's many people that have dotted as big as these dots you'll see on Uncle Max's beautiful face. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, using all manner of diameter rounded things, even down to um, 
a simple lead pencil, um, like shaved off. And um, you get an amazing kind of variety. And for the, your listeners who get to go and see this exhibition at the Ballarat Gallery, take particular note of his eyes because it can only be appreciated, this painting, in the, in the, in the flesh. Mm. And the thing about Uncle Max is that he has one of those to- uh, like kind of faces that tell a million yarns. And also his eyes are um, the most outstanding blue eyes and they're kind of cosmic. And I wanted to, you know how if, if anybody's ever gotten closer to close to an eagle, um, you, you... I don't know if too many... I don't, I, I don't know if too many people have. I try to avoid mm. looking at them in the eye. I think that provokes uh, true. them. True. Well, if you are fortunate enough, um, and they are, in fact, like an elder, and that is, in many of our cultures here, still remaining, um, especially in the top end, it's offensive to look the elder in the eye, and um, uh, you have to wait to be acknowledged. And um, so... I find that with eagles as well, there's just, just so much wisdom and power there that you you feel a little bit intimidated to look into that eye because of what it's capable of and what it's seen and, and what it carries, you know. Anyway, so I tried to replicate that with Uncle Max's eyes and each of those eyes are really quite cosmic because of the amount of dots used to create the eye. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, and you've, I think, partly already answered the question, what inspired you to pick this um, your subject, Uncle Max, and how does or how does his personality work with your style of abstracting dots? Okay, well, it's a good question because um, the beauty of Uncle Max being selected as a candidate is a major victory for um, for myself in the fact that I'm generally the stick in the mud in in uh, or the spanner in the works in modern Aboriginal art, I guess. And then my stuff is usually known for its highly politicised edge and talking about social justice. And um, what the victory is here is that uh, Uncle Max doesn't fit the criteria of what the Archibald looks for, and that is some uh, an, an individual that's known in sport, arts, politics or music. And um, Uncle Max is this beautiful figure from Sydney, this very kind of um, transient, ambiguous figure that, He's not knows it in any of those, but he's generally at events involving those things. So he does smoking ceremonies in Sydney, mm-hmm. and so he's always on the generally on the arm of the Lord Mayor, Clover Moore, at these events, and he's become a much loved kind of um, little household name within the Sydney region. And so he's not known to it probably wouldn't be known to most people in Ballarat or Victoria and so forth. So. Um, it's a tremendous achievement to tr- kind of bend those those uh, regulations, and that's what I'm about in art. Um, it's about kind of just trying to step outside of the parameters, which is a very hard thing to do in a conservative institution. Did you um, expect to be in the finalists' group? No way, because uh, I must admit I do like to do my research and tend to tend to um, hang on a kind of, uh, well, I, I question, you know, how things work and whatever, and I've, I've been a veteran of many prizes now in the 17 years of being an artist, and 
um, those, you know, those generally the criteria and the, and the parameters really do affect you. Yeah, and, and it's really hard them, work, isn't it? It's really hard work to be an artist and trying to conform in this oh, yeah. way. Yeah, it's, um, you know, geez, I can think of a number of analogies, but um, <laughs> it's like, um, in this case, it's, it's just, um, you know, get, getting into that and, and getting acceptance in, inside a, a competition that if you, what I did was I Googled um, the history of the Archibald and ABC have made this kind of um, interactive uh, or a, uh, yeah, it's like an interactive study of um, a chronology of the Archibald. And what it does is it it morphs the faces over the 140 years Ooh. that the Archibald has been running. And, um, and then it gives you some statistics as well. So it probably wouldn't surprise many people that... Seventy-five percent of the of the um, winning portraits have been white males. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> so the subjects have are, are white males, because we've noticed throughout history that um, gentry seem to take themselves quite seriously. That's right. And um, so alarmingly, the stat for an Aboriginal entry, and there's only been several Aboriginal candidates. Uh, that have been like portraits that have mm. actually won. I'm thinking the first one. Oh, David Gilpilly. Oh, yeah, Majira mm. and uh, Dave Gil- Gilpil. Yep, later on with David Gopilil. And um, so uh, actually something like 0.3% yeah, yeah. have been black faces. Yeah. So obviously there's a long way to go. And uh, I'm just thankful that there are members of the um, trustees who voted me in. And um, and I hope that changes dramatically. And one positive thing about the Archibald is that they now have a uh, children's Archie. And you see, you're walking around yeah, close, yeah. To, close to the gallery in certain shop windows. They have yeah, many right. of the school um, children's entries. And that's a tremendous thing because, you know, generally kids at that age come without... Uh, Come without a prejudice, and so you've got your schoolmate in school who might be of a different culture, and you decide to draw them up for the entry. And you know, maybe that's the change, and maybe the kids are going to do that. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of variety actually. Uh, before we get on to how you actually made the image, because actually, if people go down to the uh, Ballarat Gallery to have a look at this uh, stuff, it's uh, going to be at the gallery until the 15th of November and, you know, it's only a hop, skip and a jump. It's a nice train journey and Ballarat is a very interesting town. You'll be refreshed to go there. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting formats that have been used in this particular uh, uh, group of uh, paintings. Uh, they're not just uh, what you'd expect. And there's explanations for kids below some of the paintings. So it's not... Uh, it's quite inclusive, but uh, the way you've uh, you're, they call you self-taught, and they call you a pop artist. Uh, you used acrylics to do this portrait, didn't you? And it's That's larger correct. than and it's larger than life. You deliberately made it larger than life. Yeah, definitely. Well, see, my the origins of my painting began using house paints. I was given oh. a I was given a corner of an industrial unit in Western Sydney where I hailed from. 
And um, at the back of the unit was a handful of um, acrylic house paint and a couple of big sheets of MDF board. And my origins began as painting large-scale things, but also murals in schools. So I find that the good old um, paint from the hardware store in the four-litre cans goes a long way because you can use it on the outdoor murals and also on your canvases. But just the consistency in the paint that I've stuck with, it's not not expensive oils from an art store. Um, and I just like the use of that kind of plasticity in a good acrylic paint uh, from, from a hardware store. Yeah, yeah. So um, that works perfect for such a large canvas. And in this case, what I did was um, that big canvas, which is a whopping 2.1 metres square, um, it um, kind of was... I recycled it from last year's attempt <laughs> when I painted another elder and or began to anyway and so it was just too big a canvas to discard and I thought I'll just have it restretched from a trusty mate back in Sydney and we'll give it a go and um, there's actually um, uh, my Instagram name is Black Douglas B-L-A-K Douglas and uh, there's a handful of um, time-lapse videos of me painting this portrait oh fantastic so, uh, yeah, for those who are interested in that, it's pretty cool. It's um, just set up the camera and uh, through the course of, of painting it. And it just felt good from the, the word go. And my studio mates kept complimenting me, saying, you know, and they, they're pretty harsh critics themselves. And um, they just kept saying, this is looking really good. And then by the time I finished it, I just kind of stood back and we all went, hmm, just got a good feeling about it, this painting. Yeah, yeah. So with that, with that encouragement, I just thought, well, won't hurt to have a go. And fortunately, I'm just down the road from the Archaeology of New South Wales, so it doesn't hurt me as it does many to get your painting down there. The, and, um, um, it, 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 the, before we finish the way you've made the painting, uh, it's uh, it's got this quality to it, which I actually really enjoy, which is it's matted, like it's the texture's been built, Right. Is that how you see oh, it? Is that how you do it? Yeah, de- definitely. You, you're right there because, you know, there must be 10,000 dots in the, yeah. in the thing at least. And it just, um, what I did was I produced a study. So there's a one metre square version, which is basically the same. Mm. And I worked off that. So I, I would look at that and then work up onto the big canvas. And um, and what I that was kind of a, a, a process that did evolve as, each layer went down. So, and what I found particularly entertaining was the the, the use of the rounded things that I was using, and um, determined by the pressure of that, what how they were applied to the canvas, where you could get, you know, a third of a circular thing. Or also, you'll notice that there's um, there's a lot of tonal kind of gradation in that in those dots. So. You dip it, dip the thing in the paint, the round thing, and then I put it on the canvas. But then I would keep going off that to either, in either direction, and of course, uh, it would kind of uh, reduce the the amount of paint as as it was sliding away to the left or to the right or whatever. And so you get these nice little tonal gradations happening, and that was a very important thing, especially for the the reds and the and the browns in the base coats of his skin. Do you think that the materials that you used, are they sort of part of the political or artistic statement that you're trying to make or did they become part of it? 
not so much the materials themselves, but certainly the ex- the exaggeration of the dot. And what you'll notice is that in the grey sections, I should explain a bit about the title, I guess. Um, Smoke and Mirrors, it's a lot of my work from with double entendres. And so Smoke and Mirrors is a term that we're familiar with, but, um, you know, something that's, um, that's not quite validated or, or you know, kind of um, it's not fictitious what, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, it's not mm-hmm. what people... It's not what it seems. Exactly. Now, um, that rung in my head when Tony Abbott said uh, that Welcome to Countries had become a tokenistic affair. And um, you see, Uncle Max often accompanies uh, whoever is doing a Welcome to Country back in Sydney by doing a smoking ceremony. Mm. And so I saw that double entendre immediately, that the smoke and mirrors, I've heard other people say, well, you know, um, we didn't particularly light fires to welcome people. And um, and Uncle Max, given that he's not from Sydney region, he's from um, out back of Broken Hill. And um, he's in there doing these ceremonies. And so I hear a lot of people saying that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's not a true cultural thing. Um, and the other thing is that he does these cultural ceremonies within the shiny facades of the tall skyscrapers in Sydney. So you've got this smoke actually happening, bellowing up in, yeah. within those confines of the CBD. And, oh, being, re- and being reflected off the buildings, yeah. I imagine. Mm. And going into the clouds, because that's what those uh, facades do to the clouds. That's right. And um, so that's indicated in the use of the grey stripes in the painting. Mm. And um, there's several grey bands in my paintings. And that's a, a kind of a, um evolution of, of what used to be the several clouds in my painting, the several flat-bottom clouds. Several because... Um, the representative of the seven, the five states and two territories that we've been divided up into on this continent, and um, seven points on the Commonwealth star, the main star on the Australian flag. Mm. So um, that creates the background in this case, and it's their grey and representative of corporate grey and the city. And then you've got the enamel dots, and they're something I've introduced in, in lieu of um, exaggerating the use of the dot. So the enamel clear dot goes on the grey surface and creates that pattern in the background. That's, um, I call it the faux dot. It's the dot that you have when you're not having a dot. dot. You know? <laughs> it's so, like um, I, I, pretend... in the earlier interview, I called the faux middle class, the pretend Ooh. middle class. You go on. Yes. Anyway, go for it. Love it. And so it depends on where the viewer is standing, whether they see the, the, the um, you know, the depth of the dot or not. Um, so you stand to a side out of the light. You're not oh, interesting. You stand in the light, you'll see the dot. Oh, you're a clever fellow. Did um, Uncle Max Yulo like his picture? Oh, did he ever? <laughs> he, he uh, from the word go, he just, I showed him the, the original study and then I said, okay, with your consent, you know, we're going to go up to the big one. Yeah. And um, so then when we got it down to the gallery, um, there's a couple of things that happen when you're a finalist, and that is that uh, you get invited to a, an artist luncheon on the Thursday. Cool. And, Did they have nice um, food? Um, 
the best ribbon sandwiches I've ever had. <laughs> Go on. And, um, and then, and so I took Uncle Max down for that one. And uh, the kind of people at the, the, the polite ladies at the gallery, they were swarming around him because they, they really wanted to see this man with these beautiful blue eyes. And it was really beautiful. He really he could really ham it up amongst those that scene, you know. Yeah. He's quite the quite the entertainer. And then on the Friday they do the uh, award, the winner announcement with the to the media. Mm-hmm. And Saturday it opens up. So he loved it. He reveled in it all, and he really enjoyed being within that circle. And and pretty sure he would have drummed up some business for smoking ceremonies while he was there. <laughs> you did go down to Ballarat as well, didn't you? I did. Turned up for the opening there, and that was um, entertaining as well. We met Auntie Marlene there, and and um, got to see her beautiful art as well. And so, um, and met some of the other local Indigenous artists that you've got in the area. So that was a lovely occasion. Well, thank you very much for uh, getting up in the morning this morning and uh, chatting to us about. And congratulations for being a finalist in the Archibald Prize. Thank you so much. Thanks for the interview and and g'day to everyone and enjoy your coffee. Yeah, thanks, Thank you. Bye-bye. What a great guy. And as I said, uh, you know, we've just been talking to uh, Black Douglas. Uh, He is the first identified Dungati Aboriginal artist to be a finalist in the Archibald Prize. But as he said, he's not the first Aboriginal person, Indigenous person. In fact, I think I'll just stay Indigenous person or first uh, First Peoples person from Australia to be a finalist at the Archibald Prize. And you get a chance to go and have a look at that exhibition. It's at the Art Gallery at uh, Ballarat, which is a very fine building. It's beautiful in itself. The town is beautiful. I haven't been there for a while and I was thinking, oh, how interesting this place is. And, uh, of course, it's the home of the Democracy Museum and it gives us a chance to remind you that the Eureka celebrations are coming up very soon, and of course, 3CR does the crossover. You can go and see what's left of the flag. Yes, that's right. Oh, and I read the uh, history of... Did you know, this is unbelievable, I found this a bit irritating, that, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, Eureka flag was uh, un, unstated who it was who made this flag, I think some people would dispute this, and that on the morning that the stockade took place and people were killed, etc., etc., that uh, one of the, uh, uh, I, they gave his name, uh, the um, one of the uh, police or whatever, army people that were involved in the confabulation um, p- uh, took the flag down and it was retained in that per- that person's family until they decided to give it to the art gallery for display. How outrageous. I know. I, I almost turned inside out when I read that story. But, you yeah, know, I went to Ballarat and I did a tour of the graveyard, which is actually fascinating. It's a creepy but a good way to learn about history as well. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, um, you can go down there and uh, uh, experience the delights of Ballarat, go to the art gallery, uh, Victoria's oldest and largest regional gallery, which is hosting the prestigious Archibald Prize this year. And it is the only art gallery that is going to have the uh, finalists for the Archibald outside New South Wales. And it's uh, going to be happening until November the 15th. And Black Douglas says that you have to see 
the portrait in real life. Otherwise, you don't get the full effect. You don't get the thrill. No, no. It, it is actually quite thrilling. There's lots of really great uh, things to see there. Anyway, we've come to the end of the program. We were going to talk more politics. We've got only two shakes of a lamb's tail to ask you about the speak out on Friday night. Yes, last night there was a speak out in support of Palestine. People have probably heard about Israel ramping up its attacks on the Palestinians and there's been also lots of pictures of the brave young Palestinians fighting back, which is fantastic. But I was saying to Annie that I think that what it's really about is the fact that Israel sees the Palestinians as a demographic time bomb. They're worried that already the Palestinians are starting to outnumber them. And it shows you how undemocratic the Israeli state is. If you actually had one person, one vote, technically the Palestinians could vote Israel out of existence. And I think this is what they're terrified of. <laughs> Which is a little, little bit like the uh, white Americans and uh, the uh, state of the increase in population of people of uh, many colours. <laughs> yes, except the um, Netanyahu seems to have decided to try and kill people off, basically, seems to be his strategy. Hmm. Anyway, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we had a chat with uh, Ian Watson around his book, A Disappearing World, Studies in Class, Gender and Memory. Sorry about the unseemly language in rank and file. We'll have a word with Marcus. We uh, talked. To, uh, we had uh, Kevin, who is getting increasingly angry at the preposterous nature of uh, our present government. And we ha- were... Delightfully uh, informed by Black Douglas about the um, his painting that was a finalist at the Archibald Prize, which is now hanging in the uh, Ballarat Art Gallery. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with another track from the wonderful, wonderful uh, Limbo, which is the most fabulous circus, which is being is shown at uh, the Spiegel Tent. It finishes on Sunday. If you can get a ticket. You should, I tell you, it was wonderful. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.